Well, Easter services changed Anne's life, and we never know what's going to happen when we invite people to Easter services, do we? We, we don't know what's going to happen. People around us that we think, that person will never say yes, might say yes. That person will never be changed, might be changed. And so don't forget to pick up some of these cards as you walk out the door. They are useless to us after today. And so take them with you, uh, leave them on your table at lunch, uh, give them to your neighbors, give them to your friends, uh, stick them on people's windshields when you're uh, at the your kid's ball game or whatever you want to do. But uh, make sure that you're inviting people to come because we don't know how somebody's story is going to end. In fact, it's dangerous to predict how a story is going to end, isn't it? I-, I learned that lesson again this past week. How many of you, say amen if you've ever had to learn a lesson more than once, amen. Uh, <laughs> this past week on Sunday night, I was sitting on my couch watching basketball and I was feeling pretty smug about my bracket because uh, so many of my friends that were in the same bracket had lost their championship team or their, their, both of their finals teams or all four of their, three of their four final four teams. And I was still sitting pretty and both of my teams that I had going to the championship game were uh, in good shape. And in fact, at 1030, on Sunday night, I tweeted this. Uh, you can see this. Still feeling pretty good about my pick of Xavier to win it all. So I'm going to go to bed now and pray they don't collapse. Okay, good night. And uh, I tweeted that, and then I went to bed. Xavier was up by 12 with about nine minutes left in the game, and I felt pretty good about that. If you watched the rest of that game, you know what happened. Uh, I don't know if Xavier collapsed or if Florida State just poured it on, but obviously they fell apart. And in any case, just another case of the come-from-behind Cinderella story that all really defines March Madness. That's why they call it madness, right? It's why we love this time of year if you're a basketball fan. But it reminded me it's dangerous to try to predict how a story is going to end. And it's even more dangerous to tweet how the story is going to end before the story actually ends. So maybe that was my lesson. Uh, Danish politician Carl Christian Steinecke once famously wrote, it's difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. And so we're going to uh, look at a couple stories today. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10 if you have them. If you don't, there's a, one of these blue Bibles on the floor around you. It's page 707 in that Bible. Because the lesson I learned last weekend and the one we're going to see in Scripture today is it's dangerous to predict how a story is going to end. So today, as Jerry said, we're finishing up this series called My Way Back, and what we've been doing is looking at some stories in Scripture of people who have found their way back to God, and we've been kind of looking at those stories and seeing how they uh, happened, and then we've also been encouraging you to write down your story. In week one, we actually gave you some time in the service to start to write down your story, and uh, we've also encouraged you to write down or to record your story on video which may be a little intimidating for you, but I tell you, uh, on Friday night, our connection group, we sat around and had, we went around the room and just shared everybody's My Way Back story, and it was really, really encouraging to hear. And so that's why we're doing this. We're sharing those with our church, so we're encouraging to record them on video in two minutes or less and send them to mywaybackatgenesischurch.me, mywaybackatgenesischurch.me. Many of you have done that. We're featuring them on our Vimeo page, which is vimeo.com slash churchgenesis. If you missed all that, um, there's information at the Info Hub on where to put those. But if you go out there now, there's about 35 or 40 
My Way backstory is there. So you could spend some time, you could spend a good hour, 15, hour and a half uh, watching My Way backstories from people at Genesis Church, stories like Anne's that are a little more produced, and then stories like mine and many others that are out there that were just recorded on an iPhone. And, and we're going to keep posting those. You don't have to, because this series is ending today, you don't have to stop with that. We're, we're going to continue uh, receiving those stories and posting those stories. And so we'd love for you to be, your hearts to be encouraged by those stories. But as we close this series today and prepare our hearts for Easter, I, I want to look at one more, well, actually two more stories from Scripture. Uh, in fact, two places in the New Testament were presented with two men with quite different backgrounds. And most of us, acting out of our flesh, uh, we would definitely look at their respective stories, and I think we in our hearts could pick which one would end up in heaven and which one wouldn't. But as we know, it's dangerous to predict how a story is going to end. And so the first of those stories happens here in Mark chapter 10, where we're presented with this wealthy young man who appears to have it all together. And he runs up to Jesus to ask him a question. Mark 10, 17 is where we'll start. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Now, I want you to notice the posture of this man. He clearly believes there's something special about Jesus. He runs up to him and he falls down on his knees. And then he calls him good. And Jesus says, there's no one good except for God. Why do you call me good? So this man clearly sees something in Jesus that he doesn't see in other teachers. He doesn't see in other people in the world. So you know that he's got some respect for this teacher, right? Jesus says, you know the commandments. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. Or you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Now, this is either one good dude or he's a lion. Uh, you know what? And so we don't know which one it is, but we could do a whole sermon about that. But we're just going to assume that this is a good dude. He, he's kind of stuck by his guns his whole life. He's been a good moral actor. And so he says, I've kept all these since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. This is so important. Think about this. When we bring our stuff to Jesus... This is the posture he takes with us. You know, how would it change your mind about who God is, about who Jesus is? If you knew when you brought your junk to him, what he does is he looks at you and loves you. You know, so many times we think when I uh, confess something that's going on in my life, when I bring my stuff to God, when I pray to him and tell him what's really happening in my heart, God's going to judge me. He's going to not like me. He's going to not understand. But Jesus, this man brings his stuff to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and loved him. It's so instructive for our lives. And then he says this, One thing you lack, he said, Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now we look at this and we think, Now here's a good guy. He's a good dude. He's from a good family. He, he's never been in trouble, never done anything wrong, apparently never sinned right? He, he's a good guy. We might trust him to sell us a car. We might trust him to invest our money for us. We probably even want him to marry our daughters, right? This is the kind of guy this is. He always does the right thing. He always says the right thing. He's probably funny and charming too. He probably has deep blue eyes that when you gaze into them, they're like the pools of the ocean. He's like the Chris Pratt of first century Palestine, right? 
Here's this guy, and you just know, because he always does everything right, you just know. You just know he's going to do what Jesus challenges him to do, right? He's going to take that next step. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And look at this, verse 22. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. This story doesn't end like we think it should. Right? In fact, if you were watching this in a movie theater, you'd probably walk out upset because the movie didn't end the way you think it should end, just like you did with La La Land. Right? You walk in, the guy's supposed to get the girl, the girl's supposed to get the guy, the guy's supposed to stop and go follow Jesus, and it doesn't end how you think it's going to. In fact, I think this is one of the ways that we can know that Scripture is true, that it's real. Because if if this was some fairy tale, everybody that encountered Jesus would be changed for the better. They'd drop all their bad habits. They'd walk with him for the rest of their lives, and everybody would live happily ever after, right? Jesus would just sprinkle some magic fairy dust on people, and they'd all be perfectly obedient. But that's not what happens. We see several stories like this one with, of real people with real encounters with Jesus that decide in the end to turn away. I wonder what happened to this rich young man. You know, one of the things that we see from this story is Jesus challenged him in a unique way, a way that was unique to him. He gives him this challenge. He says, uh, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now, that's not a command for us in Scripture. There's nothing that says in order to inherit the kingdom of heaven, we have to sell all our stuff and give it all away to the poor. This was a unique challenge to this man because Jesus looked at him and he saw his wealth and he said that wealth has a hold of this guy's heart. And so if I'm going to get his attention, he's going to have to do this. Jesus always challenges us in a way we don't expect. And that's what happened to this rich young man. And so I wonder what happened after this. I wonder if he went home and looked at his great wealth. I always picture it like uh, Scrooge McDuck in DuckTales. Like he's got it all piled up, you know, all the coins, and he goes diving in it. Uh, through it. I wonder if he went home and goes, man, I'm glad I made that choice. And he rolled around and made coin angels, you know, on his bed. I wonder if that's what happened. Or do you think he went home and he looked at his wealth and he fell to his knees and he started to weep because he knew he had made the wrong choice. I still believe that this man was changed by his interaction with Jesus. We never get to hear the end of the story, but I wonder, just using my sanctified imagination, this is not from Scripture, don't write this down, but I wonder if this man, we don't see him later in Scripture, but he's not identified as the same guy. I wonder if he's not one of the men who was supporting Jesus' ministry later in his life. I wonder, maybe this is Joseph of Arimathea who uh, gave Jesus the tomb that he was laid in. I don't know. That's not in Scripture. That's just me. But I wonder if this man, I believe this man had to be changed for the better from his interaction with Jesus. But at this point, he walks away. I believe everyone who has an encounter with Jesus is changed by it. But not everybody will turn it into a my way back story. Now, I want to contrast that with the story of another man we see in the New Testament. We meet him in in some of Jesus' last moments on earth. But before we do that, recognizing it's Palm Sunday today, I want to trace the steps of Jesus in his very last week, what we call Holy Week and if, or Passion Week. And if you uh, want to do this during this week, if you want to follow along to Jesus' last week, we've put a devotional at the Info Hub. It just says Passion Week on it. It's seven days, uh, Monday through Sunday, that you can uh, read. Actually, I think it might be Sunday through Monday. 
Sunday through Monday, today through Sunday through Saturday, sorry, next Saturday. And uh, there's seven days of devotional there. If you want to pick that up at the Info Hub, you can do that. But I just want to walk quickly through the events of the last week of Jesus' life. So on Sunday, uh, today, Palm Sunday, Jesus sends two of his disciples to go retrieve a donkey, a colt, actually, of a donkey. And he rides into the city of Jerusalem in preparation for the Passover festival. Now, Passover is an important holiday for the Jewish people. It's probably the most important holiday. It was there to celebrate the um, passing over of the Jewish people, the faithfulness of God when they were being held captive in Egypt. Uh, And so remembering when God led them out of slavery back in the days of Moses. And so for the most devout Jews, they would have headed to Jerusalem every year to go to the temple, the one temple that existed in Jerusalem, uh, and made a sacrifice. We know that Jesus was from a devout family because we see in Scripture that every year his family would go to the temple uh, during the Passover. Now, the days prior to this, prior to this happening, Jesus riding into Jerusalem, he had been spending some time in the Judean wilderness, which is an area of where there aren't any cities outside of Jerusalem. He was teaching. He was healing people. The crowds had started to gather. I mean, remember, there are people coming in for the Passover. Uh, there are people that live in Jerusalem, and there are probably that are just hanging around in the wilderness. And Jesus is teaching. He's healing. These people start to follow Jesus. And so as he rode into Jerusalem on this little colt, Let's just take a moment to take in the irony of this. All of the religious leaders and the priests probably rode into town on their big horses, their stallions, and here comes the Savior of the universe, the Son of God, riding in on this little colt of a donkey. How unexpected is Jesus? He didn't even have a a saddle. Uh, The disciples put their coats over the donkey so Jesus would have a place to sit. And so he rides into town and these people had, uh, crowds had gathered around him in the wilderness and people are throwing their coats on the ground in front of him and they're cutting palm branches off trees and they're throwing them on the ground and they're, they're waving them at him and they're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save us. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in highest heaven. That was on the Sunday. That's why it's Palm Sunday, the palm branches. Uh, He goes in, he looks around the temple, but it's getting late. And so he heads back out to Bethany. What you see when you read uh, the account of Holy Week is Jesus isn't staying in Jerusalem. He goes into Jerusalem during the day, and then he heads back out to Bethany. And again, we're not told this in Scripture, but it's my firm belief that he's staying with Lazarus, who he had just raised from the dead not long ago, and his sisters Mary and Martha. Their home is in Bethany, and we know they were close friends. Um, And so he's coming back out to Bethany during the night and going back into Jerusalem during the day. This is important to know because we know there are people in Jerusalem that were out to get Jesus, and they may have gone to get him uh, during the night had he not gone outside the city. So he goes back out to Bethany. On Monday, he heads back into the city. And where does Jesus go? Well, he goes back to the temple. He goes to the place where the people, the pilgrims, are coming into town. Most scholars estimate there could have been between three hundred and 400,000 pilgrims coming into Jerusalem during Holy Week every year. Three hundred to 400,000 people who were coming in to make a sacrifice. And because they were traveling from long distances, they, that many of them didn't bring animals with them to sacrifice. So fortunately... There's a place set up just outside the temple where you can go buy an animal for sacrifice at only several times the market price. It's a little bit like going to the Disney store at Disney World, 
right? So it's much more expensive than you expect, uh, but they're there. They've got your attention. You're there for a reason, so why not charge you whatever they can? That's what people are doing in the temple courts. But the Jewish people couldn't pay for religious items with Roman currency. And this area where most of the Jewish population lived was controlled by the Romans. And so for day-to-day transactions, they would use Roman currency, Romans coins, Roman coins with Caesar's picture stamped on them. But it was against the Jewish law to use Roman currency for religious purposes. It was considered an abomination. So what they would have to do is if they were going to buy an item to sacrifice to God, they would first have to change their money from Roman coins to the Tyrian currency, which is the currency that was uh, specifically coined for religious purposes, and then buy their sacrifice with Tyrian currency. Now, fortunately, also, there were people set up in the temple courts very conveniently to change your Roman coins for Tyrian currency. They were the money changers, right? And so Jesus sees this happening. He sees people exchanging coins at this exorbitant exchange rate, and he sees people charging for sacrifices at this exorbitant price, market price, and he's angered by this injustice, and he starts turning over the tables and yelling at the money changers and the vendors saying, you're turning the house of prayer into a den of robbers. And he goes back out to Bethany that night. And on Tuesday, he goes back to the temple. And while he's there, his disciples draw his attention to the buildings. Look at these magnificent buildings in the temple, Jesus. And then Jesus uh, predicts, he prophesies that these buildings will be torn down. Now, this isn't the time where he says, you could tear these buildings down and in three days they'll be rebuilt. That was when Jesus was predicting his death and resurrection. That was a different time. But this time he says this temple is going to be destroyed. And that actually happened in 66 AD. The Romans marched into Jerusalem and destroyed the second temple. But while Jesus is there, he's teaching and he's healing. And he has a confrontation with the elders and the rulers. And they ask him, where do you get the authority to teach like this? Where do you get the authority to heal like this? And so Jesus turns it around on him, as Jesus often does. And he asks them a question. And they want to answer his question. But they look around and they see the people. And they know that the people think that Jesus is a prophet. And the people are getting stirred up. And so the rulers and the elders refuse to answer Jesus' question. And so they walk away. And then Jesus starts quoting scripture to them. And one of the things he says is he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's, that's, that's from the Old Testament. And uh, he's, what he's saying is, hey, me, I'm the one that you rejected. And pretty soon I'm going to be the thing on which this whole kingdom of God is built. So he goes back out to Bethany where he's reclining at dinner. And he has his feet anointed by a woman with perfume. This is not the time that he was anointed by a sinful woman who was in the Pharisee's house. That's another event. But this time he's in a friend's house and his feet is anointed by this woman with perfume. And Judas sees this and he thinks it's such a waste. And he finally, his switch is flipped in his head and he decides, I'm going to sell him out. And Judas decides that he he strikes a deal to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of, get this, look at the irony, of Tyrian silver the very same coins that the money changers were exchanging in the marketplace. On Wednesday, oddly enough, we have no account in Scripture of what happened on the Wednesday of Holy Week. Probably they're making preparations for Passover dinner because on Thursday at sundown, Passover starts. And Thursday evening, Jesus gathers in an upstairs room with his disciples to eat, and it's there that Jesus shows them what it means to serve one another when before dinner, he takes off his tunic and he wraps a towel around his waist and he goes around and he washes the disciples' feet one at a time. 
And then they celebrate the Last Supper, which we celebrated earlier by taking communion together. And after supper, they start this walk to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus often went to pray. And it's on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus stops and he gives them this lesson about the vine and the branches. He says to them, uh, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, then you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And then they continue walking and they get to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus senses the end is near. And he falls to his knees and he prays, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And sweat falls from his skin like drops of blood. But still, even in his anguish, he declares, but not my will, God, but yours be done. And then Thursday night, Judas shows up with an armed crowd to arrest Jesus. And there's a scuffle. There's some conflict. And and one of the disciples takes out a sword and cuts off the ear of one of the guards that's come to arrest him. And Jesus says, put your sword away. And he heals the ear of the soldier. And then he's arrested and he's taken to face the high priest. And they, they put him on trial. It's a mockery of a trial. People lie and give false witness about Jesus. But Jesus remains silent until the high priest asked him this question. He looked at Jesus and said, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? (laughs) What a great question. You know, that's a a question that 2,000 years later, each one of us still has to answer, right? Who is Jesus? Are you the Messiah? Do I believe you're the Messiah? Do I believe you're the son of God? That is the most important question you will ever be asked in your life. And this high priest asks of Jesus, he says, are you the son of the blessed one? And then Jesus says the words that probably sealed his fate. He says, are you the son of the blessed one? And he looked at the high priest and said, I am. The crowd went wild at this. They they spat on him. They, they blindfold him and then punched him and beat him. And the sun arose on Friday morning. And even his closest friend, Peter, as the rooster crowed, denied he knew Jesus. And then very early in the morning, they dragged Jesus to stand trial before Pontius Pilate. He was the Roman governor put in charge of this region. And Pilate wants to set Jesus free. He, he says, what crime has this man committed that we should, we should punish him? And Pilate, Pilate asks the crowd that, but they only shout back, crucify him. And so Pilate finally gets fed up with just dealing with this crowd and he steps back and he symbolically washes his hands to show that he's free of guilt and he turns Jesus over to the crowds. And in scripture it tells us they flogged him. And we hear that word flogged and it kind of sounds funny to the ear. It's kind of funny to say, it almost sounds harmless, but it doesn't really reflect or communicate what happened. What they would do is they would take a whip that was made of, woven together of several leather strands, and to the end they would tie uh, shards of broken pottery, or sometimes animal teeth, or uh, thorns, or sharp stones, or anything that might tear the flesh, and they would would whip the victim's bare back until the skin starts to tear. And and then once the, the flesh was torn, they would keep whipping until it tore down to muscle, and then after the muscle, it would get down almost to the bone. It was brutal. So Jesus was flogged and a crown woven out of sharp thorns was thrust on his head. And then the cross was placed on his back, his his torn, shredded back. And he was made to carry this up a hill where he would be crucified. 
Then once he was there, a single nail was driven through each of his wrists to hold his arms to the cross, and then one to hold both feet to the bottom of the cross. This was a brilliantly torturous means of execution. When the body would sag down off the cross, it was almost impossible to breathe. Your lungs would collapse, and to open up your lungs and to get a breath, you would have to push against that painful nail that was uh, driven through your feet, and it would shoot a sharp pain up your leg. And this cycle was repeated until eventually the victim would just get tired of having that pain shoot up their leg, and they would suffocate. Now, here's the thing. All that, all that pain, all that suffering, that death, Jesus didn't deserve that. I did. He's not the one who rebelled. I, I do. I do all the time. Jesus only did, ever did what his father God told him to do. I disobey him often. Jesus took every one of God's promptings and was obedient to it. I turn away. The, the death that Jesus suffered was meant for me. He took my place. He took your place. And he did it so that any of us, so that all of us could have eternal life with God. Earlier, I told you we were going to meet two men with two different backgrounds. We met one in the rich young man, and the other one has his encounter in this moment with Jesus right at the end of his life. In fact, he's hanging on the cross next to Jesus in both of their final hours of life. We first run into him in Luke chapter 23. It says this, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Uh, one of the criminals, verse 39 says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. He's not the one we're concerned about right now. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Can you believe the nerve? The audacity of this guy, this common criminal who waits till the very end of his life after everything that he's done and has the boldness to pray, to beg for mercy. I mean, look at his sentence right before that. He says, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. This guy deserves death. He deserves to die and to face eternity separated from God for what he's done. But remember, it's dangerous to try to predict how a story is going to end. And the next thing we see is Jesus in his final act of compassion after a really, really hard 24 hours. In verse 43, Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. In his very last breaths, Jesus offers grace and forgiveness. And in his very last breath, this man, this common criminal, is able to see the grace and mercy of Jesus in action. The very same grace and mercy that was offered to the rich young man, but he walked away. 
But this thief or this revolutionary, we don't know what he's done. We just know that he's a criminal and we know that it's severe enough to have warranted a death sentence. He's not the guy we want to buy a car from. He's not the guy we want to marry our daughter. But this guy submits to Jesus as Lord while the rich young man walks away. It's not at all like we would have predicted. Friends, this is a great reminder for me that it's not over till it's over. <laughs> that, that if you're still breathing, there's still time to see the grace and mercy of God at work in your life. If your husband or your wife is still alive, there's still time to see the grace or mercy of God in them. If your child or your parent or your brother or your sister or your friend is still alive, there's still time for them. We can't possibly predict how someone's story is going to end. In fact, we get in trouble when we do because his ways are not our ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so his ways are higher than our ways. Man looks at what's on the outside, but God sees what's on the inside, which is a problem for us. Because for some of us in this room, our story is this. I've always been a good person. I've always done the right thing. And so me and God are good. Uh, but that's not what scripture tells us. The Bible tells us that no one is righteous, not even one, that we all deserve the wrath of God. But for the criminal on the cross, Jesus took that wrath that he deserved. But the rich young man, he had to face the wrath of God. Now you may think, what wrath? He got to walk away and keep all of his stuff. But sometimes the wrath of God is him giving us what we want. Sometimes the wrath of God looks exactly like him turning us over to our own desires. If you don't believe me, just read Romans chapter one. But there's good news. His grace is sufficient for you. There is grace enough for everyone. There is mercy enough for everyone. God is not slow at keeping his promise. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. I'm getting ready to start preaching here. Therefore, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And for so many of us in this room, that's our story. We've come to that point where we had to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believed in our heart that God raised him from the dead and we were saved. That's my, that's my, my way back story. That's your my way back story. And as we see with this criminal, every my way back story has to go through the cross of Jesus. We all have a story. Not everyone has a my way back story because Jesus will challenge us in ways we never expect. But one way, one simple way we can give more people my way back stories, one way that we can give, uh, rescue more people from hell and fill up heaven is to share our story, to share our my way back story with anybody who will listen. Because when we look at the life of Jesus, we study his day-to-day -day encounters, we see a man who is filled with compassion. We see a God who is full of grace and wants everyone to find their way back to him. And I promise you, I promise when we get to heaven, it's not gonna look at all like you think it's gonna look. There are gonna be people when we get to heaven where we're gonna go, really, you? And then there's gonna be people that we desperately want to see there who won't be there because it's dangerous to try to predict how a story is going to end. 
every my way back story has to go through the cross. Let's pray together. God, I'm so thankful for that cross. I'm so thankful that you shared this story that even in his last moments of life, Jesus was there offering compassion and grace and mercy, even through the pain, even through the hardship, even through the heartache, even through his friends deserting him and denying him, through no one believing him, through the the pain and suffering that he had to endure the last 24 hours of his life, that he's there with the grace and compassion. I'm thankful that Jesus looks at us and loves us instead of looking at us and judging us. God, for those of us in this room that have a My Way Back story, I'm so thankful that that's part of our story. God, for others in this room, we haven't found our way back to you yet. We're still looking, we're still questioning, we're still asking, who is this Jesus? Is he the Messiah? Is he the son of the blessed one? God, I pray for revelation this week in our church and outside these walls for people who are inviting, people who we've been praying for, people who we're investing in, Lord, that you would reveal yourself in a new way to them, that they would see the grace and mercy of of God in this week. And I pray for great movement of your spirit across Hamilton County this week, God, that you would show yourself in a new way to people who haven't found their way back to you. And I know that the cross of Jesus is powerful enough to do that. I believe that. And I know those of us in this room believe that, God. We trust that to you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus.